0: Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 27, Lightless Bird. So, I need to fess up about something. At the end of the last episode, I said next time we'd be talking about the emu. And I lied, we're not. Well, we are going to talk about the emu today, but it's not the episode I intended. Wait, did I just lie again? There is going to be a dedicated episode on the emu. That is not happening today. There has been a scheduling issue, and it is going to be our next episode. So I thought, well, what better way to warm up for the main event than to do an introduction on flightless birds. Because I think there's something intriguing about flightless birds. Flight is so closely associated with birds that when we come across one that doesn't, it gives us pause. Like, flight is a bird's whole shtick. A flightless one is crazy. No one cares if a mammal can't fly. No one is out there saying, what do you mean, is it like a bat that can't fly? What even is that? No one says that! And yet, for birds, if it can't fly, is it even a bird? Well yes. Yes it is. And today we're going to give the flightless birds some special attention. We're going to meet a cast of characters. We'll see who gave up the skies, why they did it, where they live, and how they get by. We're going to have a good old chat about our old friend, Evolution, and explain some of the forces that drove birds to give up the freedom of the sky. That means we've got a lot to get through, so let's dig in. So how many flightless birds are there? If we were to do a full census of all the birds from every corner of the world, we would find there are between 50 and 60 that are flightless, depending on how you count. I personally count 55, but that's just me. And maybe this is the reason why flightless birds are so fascinating, because that is a tiny proportion of the population, it's just 0.5% of all bird species. They are the outliers, for the vast majority, flight is the lifestyle of choice. To be flightless is quite the social faux pas. So before we get too far into the weeds, let's meet us some birds. Now, there is only one clade of birds that are exclusively flightless, and they are the penguins. Now, I have done a deep dive on penguins previously, that's episode 20 if you haven't checked it out already. There are 17 also species of penguin exclusively, almost, confined to the southern hemisphere and the cold waters that their bodies have especially adapted to. Now penguins gave up flight to become exclusive diving specialists. There are many birds that hang out on water and dive under the surface, but they all have to overcome the problem of their wings. Underwater, wings are cumbersome things. Most birds deal with this issue by tucking their wings into their side and then propelling themselves about with their feet. Penguins didn't like that compromise though. They wanted to become the fastest thing that existed under the waves, so they gave up flight and turned their wings into flippers that are perfect for underwater pursuit. But they're the only ones that made that choice. Most birds aren't keen on giving up the advantages of flight, It gives you the power to easily evade predators, it lets you reach food that would otherwise be inaccessible, and it also gives you the option to move long distances to find favourable conditions if things change, like, say, the seasons. We call that migration, I've also done an episode on that. But for penguins, the advantages they gained from high-speed aquatics made ditching flight worthwhile. Now I'm not going to dig too deep into penguins because we have done that elsewhere, so for now let's continue our tour with the ratites. Along with the penguins, these are probably the most famous flightless birds, I'm talking about giant birds, the ostrich, emu, cassowary, but also the kiwi. Some famous extinct members of the group include the moa of New Zealand and the elephant bird of Madagascar. This group of birds is a little more diverse than you probably think, and it has representatives in New Zealand, Australia, Africa and South America. The southern continents, just like the penguins. Wow, flightless birds really like the southern hemisphere. This group contains 60 members, which, if you have been paying attention, means there must be some members of this family that can fly most diverse group in this clade are a collection of South American birds called tinamous. Compared to their bigger cousins, they are diminutive, maybe about the size of a chicken, and they vaguely look like pheasants, so nothing at all like their closely related giant cousins. Now while they can fly, they're not super keen on it, they like to stick close to the ground where they forage for food. The different species live across a variety of habitats, from the jungles of Brazil to the deserts of Mexico. As a side note, they have some of the most beautiful eggs. They have a glossy porcelain appearance, and range in colour from green, blue, black and yellow – all of them incredibly vibrant and vivid. But the interesting thing about these birds is that they settled a long-standing argument. Were the ancestors of the ostrich and emu flightless, or did they evolve from flighted birds? The presence of the tinamou and their close relation to the New Zealand moa seem to suggest that yes, at some point the relatives of all the ratites were flight birds, and that flightlessness evolved several times independently in the family, which is odd, but that's what the evidence suggests. The tinamous aside though, every other member of the ratite clade is flightless. Altogether you've got 13 birds, that's 5 kiwis, 3 cassowaries, 2 ostrich, 2 rhea, they're the smaller South American version of an ostrich, and 1 species of emu. Now the word ratite comes from Latin, and it means raft, like if you were marooned somewhere and you made a raft to escape your island. Which seems weird, but in a roundabout way, it references one of the key features that make these birds flightless. For birds to fly, they need a special anatomical feature that we call their keel, which is weird seeing that something boats have. It's like The opposite of flying, the keel is a bone, which is an extension of the sternum or breastbone. It runs down the bird's chest and extends outward perpendicular, so at right angles, to the ribs. And to be fair, it kind of does look like a keel. Now, this fancy bone provides an anchor that the bird's wing muscles attach to, thus providing adequate leverage for flight. This is why when you eat chicken or duck or turkey, All the meat is in the breast of the bird, and the wings are kind of puny. The muscles birds use to fly and flap their wings are all in their chest, not in their arms. Without a keel to anchor these muscles, birds cannot fly, and our ratite friends lack that keel bone. So even if they had wings large enough to support their heft in the air, they still wouldn't be able to fly, because their muscles could never get the leverage to get them off the ground. But this is also why the word ratite means raft, because a raft is a type of boat that lacks a keel. They're keelless birds, and that's how boating is related to flying. Although, ironically, penguins, which are the most boating of all the birds, do still have their keel. But let's stick with the ratites for a little longer, because as we said, the tinamous tell us that flightlessness within the ratite family evolved independently several times. So that means there must have been similar evolutionary pressures that push these birds to lose flight. Now, there is always one driving force that will compel a bird to give up flying, and that is conservation of energy. Flying is difficult. To lift themselves into the air, it takes a lot of energy. This is why birds have done everything in their power to make themselves as light as possible, because the less weight you have to get into the sky, the easier it is to get there the less energy you waste doing it. Hollow bones, toothless jaws, diminutive size – all of these options make a bird lighter, makes flight easier. But even so, what we will see is that if a set of circumstances arise that makes it unnecessary for the bird to fly, they will choose not to. Usually this means two conditions need to be met. Number one, the bird doesn't need to fly to get its food. And number two, the bird has no natural predators. These are the two advantages flight provides, the ability to get inaccessible food and the ability to make yourself inaccessible to things that want to make you food. If they can take care of those two things, then in order to conserve energy, a bird won't fly. But the ratites break the rule. Think about the ostrich. It lives in Africa. Lions and cheetahs and hyenas galore, all manner of carnivores that would love to snack on a flightless bird if they could, and that's probably the reason why there are no other flightless birds in Africa, aside from the ostrich and the penguins, but they're mostly in the water, so don't worry about them. But the ostrich can survive because it's three metres tall, can run at 50 kilometres an hour, and has a kick strong enough to kill a man. Not quite strong enough to kill a woman, though. Don't get me wrong, the big cats hunt them this is why they're so tall and fleet-footed. Ostrich hang out in flocks, and because they are so tall, they can usually spot a creeping predator long before it gets close enough for the kill. Once alerted, an ostrich can outrun most predators. They generally don't fight unless there are chicks involved they're children, not females. in which case they have been known on occasion to kick their attackers to death. This is why the ostrich and its relatives can be flightless. They're giant badasses, and they can deal with predators, but only because of the advantage being big has afforded them. The same is true for the other ratite birds, in particular the cassowary, which is often described as bad-tempered and pugnacious. It possesses a sharp slashing claw on both feet and is known to readily attack any foe. So by fleeing or fighting, the giant birds of the world have gotten by without flying. Now, the ratites were not the only giant birds. Several other species existed in the not too distant past, and when their remains were discovered, they were placed in the same clade as the ratites because of their similar giant appearance and flightless nature – long necks, strong legs, and vestigial wings. Oh, vestigial is a fun word. In anatomy it means an organ or limb which in the distant past used to serve a function, and now no longer does, but still exists in some sort of reduced capacity. It is the vestige, uh, the trace or remains of something. In this case, the vestigial wing is the little stubby arm that all the ratites have hung onto. Only the extinct Moa completely lost its wings and went from being a tetrapod to a bipod. Wait a second, what was I talking about? Sorry, I got distracted. Oh yes, the other giant flightless birds. When they were first discovered in the fossil record, it was thought they were closely related to the other ratites. but genetic research has since shown that these similarities are only superficial, and an example of what we in the biz call convergent evolution, where unrelated animals independently develop similar-looking features. Two prominent examples of these giant flightless birds are the demon ducks and terror birds, and no... I'm not making that up, that's what they're called. Although, if birds want to get into the supervillain business, these are the ones that should start the franchise. Although, maybe that's what's already happened and it's why they're extinct. They lost the epic battle at the end of the 15-film cinematic universe arc. Ideas for later. The Terror Birds lived in South America, and if you thought the Ostrich and Cassowary were bad, us well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Terror birds lost flight and grew big because they became apex predators. Never mind worrying about things wanting to eat them, they were the ones doing the eating. In South America, they were the biggest, meanest thing getting around on two feet. Yeah, until people turned up. Actually it wasn't humanity that spelled the doom for these birds. When the South American continent collided with the North American continent, something came down they hadn't encountered before. Mammalian carnivores, big cats, bears and the likes. The birds were unable to compete with these predators and they died out. No one is quite sure what killed off the demon ducks, but they were native to Australia and part of the megafauna that once roamed the land along with giant kangaroos and koalas. Unlike the terror birds it is suspected they were vegetarian, and when people first arrived well, yeah that proved to be the driving force that killed them off maybe. As was the story for the elephant bird of Madagascar and the moa of New Zealand, the other flightless ratite birds that didn't quite make it to today. People ate them. But more on extinction later. The last member of the ratite family and the outlying freak, even in a family of freaks, is the kiwi. The kiwi, being only about the size of a chicken, is obviously the exception in the family. It has coarse, almost hair-like brown feathers, a long beak, and lives a secretive life in the New Zealand underbrush. They hide in burrows by day and venture out by night. They use their long beaks to probe the undergrowth, looking for worms and insects and whatnot. On an island where they spent millions of years without a mammal in sight, the kiwi came to fill the ecological niche, niche that a rodent would normally cover. And in a way, this ratite, does kinda look like a two-footed, long-nosed rat. The kiwi is a good example of a phenomenon known as island dwarfism. This is where animals that are isolated on islands have a tendency to grow smaller than their mainland cousins over time. There can be a number of factors that drive this tendency, such as limited space or food, and so a more compact body ends up being more efficient. But when it comes to birds, there is another evolutionary phenomenon that can occur when they find themselves marooned on an island, and that is flightlessness itself. After looking at the penguins and the ratites, we have covered off the two main families of birds where flightlessness is prevalent, but we have also covered off the two main families that have members that live on the mainland. The evolutionary pressures that led these birds to stop flapping are also quite different to other flightless birds. Penguins decided it was more advantageous to be a fish. Ratites just got so big they could either run away or kick any threat to death. But for our other flightless birds, they needed those two conditions we mentioned before to be satisfied before they could surrender the sky food that doesn't require flight to attain, and a lack of predators. Islands are the main environments that consistently satisfy these parameters. Almost every flightless bird we have yet to meet calls an island home, with some exceptions, we'll get to the exceptions, there are always exceptions. Islands are unique because they usually remain predator-free, and with no threat of death, with no pressing need to flee to the sky, birds often stop flying altogether. Since we've just been looking at the Kiwi, let's stick with New Zealand, because this collection of islands actually has the distinction of having produced the most flightless birds. So, aside from the Kiwi and a couple of penguins that we have already met, there are another five flightless birds that call New Zealand home. There are two ducks, two rails, and a parrot. Yeah, a rail is a type of bird not the tracks trains run on, nor are they revolutionaries that rail against the establishment. But of course the parrot, the kakapo, is one of the most famous birds in the world. It is one of only two nocturnal parrots, the other is naturally the night parrot of Australia. But more important to our story, it is the world's only flightless parrot. They're a beautiful mottled moss green colour, which is all part of their camouflage strategy of looking like a boulder covered in moss. They're also incredibly fat, the heaviest parrot in the world, probably why they can't fly. And of course they're incredibly rare. For a long time they dangled on the edge of extinction, it was only with a huge effort that they were saved. Today there are a couple of hundred, all of them closely monitored, and they all have individual names. And as a general rule, if you're able to name every individual member of an entire species, it probably means that species isn't doing great. But then, being flightless and flirting with extinction kinda goes with the territory, as we will see in the other famous flightless bird from New Zealand, the takahei, a member of the rail family. Rails are a large family of swamp and marshland birds. They're stocky, rotund, and tend to have elongated toes, or the better for padding about in soft mud. Many of them have a passing resemblance to a chicken, which is why some are known as swamp or... More hens, and that's more as in the track of swampy heath like lands, not more as in the Northwest African peoples, or more as in how you moor a boat, or more as in I would like more chickens, please. Although, to be fair, we do always want more chickens. Maybe we should have just called them heath hens, it would have saved a lot of confusion. What are we talking about? The takahe has silky blue and green plumage with a bright red beak and stands about 30 centimetres tall. Unlike most rails that stick to waterways, they live in alpine grasslands and eat the tender shoots of the grass. They're an exceptionally rare bird and, funnily enough, were discovered in the fossil record before anyone ever saw a living one. They were then presumed to be long extinct for many years until they were rediscovered And now New Zealand goes to a lot of effort to keep these plump swamp chickens that live in the mountains alive. But now that we've touched on rails, we've arrived at the third major family of birds that has flightless members. After the ratites and the penguins, rails give us the next greatest number of birds that gave up flying. By my count, there are some 15 or so species of rail that are flightless and all of them share the trait of being restricted to one island somewhere or another. Many of them resemble swamp hens rotund, bluish birds with red beaks, but others are brown or banded in colour, and some are quite small. The Inaccessible Island Rail, which makes its home on Inaccessible Island in the Atlantic Ocean, is the smallest flightless bird in the world, coming in at a pip squeak size of just 40 grams. But rails raise questions. Why does this otherwise flighted family of birds have such a proclivity for becoming flightless? Are they just super lazy and once they find a nice island they just give up? Well, kinda? To begin with, all rails already have short, rounded wings. Because of the energy demands that flight places on a bird, most normal species dedicate about 40% of their weight to their keel and flight muscles. In rails, though, on average they dedicate only between 12-17% to of their mass to these muscles. This reduced mass means that even at the best of times their aeronautical prowess is somewhat lacking. Even so, they can keep in the air for a long time if needs be, and indeed, many species even undertake an annual migration. But it's this combination of less than totally robust flight along with migration that gives us our answer. Because they're weaker in the air, it's easier for a rail to be blown off course. Losing your way out in the ocean is less than ideal, but for a few lucky ones that blundered into an island, they were not only saved from a watery grave, but if the conditions were right, they were saved from ever having to migrate again. I mean, who has time for all that nonsense flying halfway around the world? Get out of here! So as individual species colonised the world's islands one by one, it gave rise to a huge diversity of flightless rail species, each especially adapted to the unique environment they found themselves in. Biologists point to this as one of the best examples of parallel evolution. This is where different species are Evolving the same trait in parallel to each other, but importantly, separate from each other. Of the roughly 150 rail species, at least 31, both living and extinct, more on extinction in a bit, are known to have become flightless after arriving on an island. And we have examples of this in the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Oceans. If a rail can fly to an island, and if that island can support them, and if there's nothing that wants to eat them, You may be sure, that rail is going to ditch its wings. Some, like the inaccessible island rail, will even start to give up on their feathers. It has lost the barbs that keep feathers neat and interlaced. Now its feathers look more like hair and they have a ragged appearance. They're basically becoming mice. With already reduced flying abilities, and a preference for being ground dwelling anyway, When conditions are right, it is easy for a rail to become flightless in a relatively short period of time. It is speculated that some species became totally flightless in as little as 125,000 years, which I know is longer than modern human civilization, but for the Earth and evolution, that is a blip. Compared to the stones and the stars, our lives are naught but a ripple on the cosmic sea. They give birth astride the grave, the lights gleam for an instant, then it's night once more. What was I talking about again? Before we move on, it is worth touching on two odd birds where we can see the transition happening between being flighted and grounded. The first is the giant coot, and no, this is not an abnormally large doddering old man. Gosh birds have weird names. I'll have another podcast about that, details at the end of the show. Coots also belong to the rail family, and this particularly beefy boy is a native of the high plateau lakes of the Andes Mountains in South America. Because of their great heft, the giant coot is flightless, they're too heavy to get off the ground. But curiously, juvenile birds can fly. They're probably the only example of a bird that begins being able to fly as a youngster and loses the ability as they age there is scant information to be had on the giant coot so what follows is speculation on my part but being a bird of the mainland it is possible that while the coot is young and more vulnerable they have maintained their ability to fly as they grow and become bigger and stronger the pressure to remain slim down for air travel is less vital for their survival possibly either way they're a curious oddity. If we now go to the island of New Caledonia, we will find another oddity, the kagu. The kagu is a bird related to basically nothing, except a bird called the sunbitten that lives in the Amazon rainforest. Continental drift is weird, don't worry about it. The kagu is a rather handsome ash grey bird. They have a long, headdress crest, which almost goes unnoticed when the bird is calm, but creates an impressive crown when excited or displaying to their fellows. The kagu spends its days in the montane forests of New Caledonia, where it patrols the ground foraging for food, and it represents an island bird that is almost at the end of its transition from air to land. It still maintains relatively large wings, and by most accounts can glide when fleeing danger. But powered flight seems more or less beyond it now. Its wings still retain beautiful patterns which it uses in courtship and threat displays. And this may be why it has retained larger wings while most other flightless birds have greatly reduced wings. Vestigial wings, if we want to use the fun jargon. Maybe in time the kagu's wings will continue to diminish as it fully abandons its former flying ways. Or maybe these social uses will be enough to retain what it has. Either way, the kagu stands as an interesting, intermediate bird in the evolutionary journey of losing flight. So between the penguins, the ratites, and the rails, we have covered about 45 of the flightless birds. There are the pair of New Zealand ducks that we mentioned, the kakapo, the kagu, and the famous flightless cormorant from the Galapagos Islands. That brings us to 50. Now, the last five I want to talk about are a little special, because, with one exception, they are all mainland flightless birds native to South America. There are three ducks and two grebes. Let's start with the grebes. The two grebes are the Juin grebe and the Titicaca grebe. Both are named after the lakes they exclusively occur on. And therein we find the reason why these birds have been able to become flightless while living on the mainland. Because you can think of lakes as being like reverse islands. Whereas an island is land surrounded by water, a lake is water surrounded by land. And because the grebes live almost exclusively on open water, they don't have to worry about predators. They can't get to them on the middle of a lake. It also explains why each grebe can only be found on a single lake. Just like an island bird that evolved on its private spit of land isn't found anywhere else, the grebe that evolved on their private spatter water also isn't found anywhere else. These lake birds are the ying to the island bird's yang. So that just leaves three ducks that are known as steamer ducks. And these are strange ducks. There are four species of steamer duck, one that can fly, known as the flying steamer duck, excellent name, and three that can't. Now, these ducks are powerful, and have powerful wings that they use to propel themselves, just not through the sky. They're called steamer ducks because they use their wings as paddles. These guys can scoot over the water at an incredible speed, kicking with their feet and rowing with their wings in combination they can get up to 15 knots, which is getting close to 28 kilometers an hour. They kick up surf and leave a strong wake behind them. I'll put a link to some footage of them uh, steaming. It's quite a sight. And this is why they're called steamer ducks, because the people who first came across them thought their swimming action was similar to a paddle steamer. Now just like the Grebes, steamer ducks spend a lot of their time on open water, which keeps them safe to a certain degree. But they're also very aggressive. They have spurs on their wings which, even though they can't get them into the sky, are still strong and more than capable of dishing out some pain. They get into bloody, literal bloody battles with each other over territory, can chase off predators, and are known to kill other water birds that get up in their grill, even one several times their own size. So predator avoidance isn't really a problem for the steamer duck, they just mess up whatever messes with them. Again, this is why they've been able to maintain mainland territory. If you're going to be flightless on the mainland, you gotta get nasty. And with that, we've pretty much come to the end of our flightless bird list. But before we close today, I want to say something about the vulnerability that comes with flightlessness. With a couple of exceptions, the vast majority of flightless birds are threatened with, or at least vulnerable to extinction – the kiwi, the kakapo, the kagu, the takahe – all of them are hanging by a thread. Even a bird like the inaccessible island rail, which is living quite happily and securely on its island, is still classified as vulnerable. This is because the bird has a small population constricted to one island. If a disease or evasive predator got on the island, it wouldn't take much to wipe these birds out. And this is what has happened to so many island-dwelling flightless birds already. Small changes can have big consequences. Lyles Wren, a tiny flightless bird that lived only on a small island off the coast of New Zealand, was famously wiped out by a single cat a lighthouse keeper brought on to East Island. Okay, there may have been a couple of cats, but my point stands. Small populations on small islands with no way to escape a predator stand little chance. It's what happened to the Dodo of Mauritius and the Guam Rail of, well, Guam. And the list goes on. The Elephant Bird, the Moa, the Dodo, the Brown Messite, the Wake Island Rail. Actually, this story of the Wake Island Rail Killone is pretty rail. wild. It was wiped out during rail. the Second World the War by a bunch rail. of starving Japanese soldiers Marikia who were roomed the on the walk. blockaded islands, Isles but Wren, that's a story for another time. Bunting. Oh, I think the list is still going. Guam Rail. The list goes on! Our podcast episode called A Tale of Two Islands takes a closer look at the vulnerability of island habitats to change. On most of these islands when birds arrived there were no humans. That isn't the case today. We have spread to many and as we spread we bring change. Birds that can't fly may do well when left alone, but when we turn up that calculation changes. As it turns out birds are one of the most successful groups of animals on the planet because of the advantages flight gives. Under ideal circumstances giving up flight can make sense, but it's a delicate gamble. It takes only a small shift for those conditions to change enough to spell these rare birds' doom. Evolution works slow. Held out on their islands, it took hundreds of thousands of years for them to lose the ability to fly, and nowhere has there ever been any evidence of a bird that lost the ability to fly and then evolved it back seems that when it comes to flying it's a one-way street. You don't use it, you lose it. Escaping their islands will never be a choice, even if they did have enough time. The world's flightless birds have nowhere they can flee to, so we have to make sure we take good care of them. And on that note, that brings us to the end of our look at flightless birds. Now next time I'm going to deliver on the promise I made before and bring you a story about the emu. And after all this flightless talk, I know you'll be nice and primed for that. I hope you'll join me then. Now if you still want some more bird action, I've got some good news. Our bonus podcast called What's Up with That Bird's Name has just come out, and this week it is all about our friend the Inaccessible Island Rail. Now that name may seem pretty self-explanatory, but trust me, there are a few quirks in there that are worth looking at. And for the low, low price of just $2 a month, you can find out all about it. All you need to do is swing on over to Patreon forward slash Bird of the Week, or one word, link in the description to find out more. And if you're feeling especially generous and want to make a larger contribution, then you too can get a special thank you from me in the show, just like my good friends Jill Chalker, Jody Little, Debbie Hode, Innis of Senni Illustration, and Richard Clark the Minty Fresh. And as always, if you'd like to receive a bird in your inbox each week, then drop me a line at weekly.bird@outlook.com, at outlook.com and I'll add you to the mailing list where you will get a new bird lovingly delivered to you for free each and every week. I mean, hey, who doesn't want more birds in their inbox? At any rate, thank you for listening and I hope you'll tune in again next time. Until then, this has been Bird... Of the week, astride of a grave and a difficult birth, down in the hole, lingeringly, the grave digger puts on the forceps. We have time to grow old. The air is full of our cries. What was I talking about again? Oh yeah, birds. Join me next time for an all Samuel Beckett, all the time podcast. It's it's gonna be absurd.